0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Arthur Kaiser to our show. Dr. Kaiser is the chancellor at Kaiser University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hi, Arthur. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today.
1: It's a delight to be with you.
0: So tell me about Kaiser University and why students select your institution.
1: Well, Kaiser University is a career-centered institution. We have uh, 21 campuses, and we are roughly 20,000 students in our programs from associate through doctoral degrees. And the reason uh, a student would choose our institution is that we are so career focused. We have we're a very structured organization that gives the students a better opportunity when they leave college, whether it be at an associate, bachelor's, master's, or doctoral level. Okay. Well, what's new at Kaiser? Oh, we always have something new. This last year, we were ranked by U.S. News and World Report at number one in the United States at major universities for providing students social mobility. So that's a that's still a very big and important part for what we're th- talking about. We're also a Hispanic serving institution, and we were ranked in the top 30 of Hispanic serving institutions in the country. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're also in the top 50. Percent of all instit- major universities in the, in the United States. Yet at the same time, we still believe very strongly, whether it be on campus or online, that the primary responsibility in education is for our students to learn from our faculty members and to be able to have that personal interaction that makes learning much more effective and uh, certainly much more uh, valuable to the student.
0: So do you have any, is there any new programs on the horizon or anything like that?
1: Well, we've, oh, we have so many, we have over a hundred, <laughs> but we've added a, a FinTech program, which is uh, the, the new cyber technology with, um, with, in terms of finances and business side. We've added um, a number of different psychology programs, especially in the mental health area to help our students and to help our, uh, you know, the jobs are there. And of course, we added a new nursing program in midwifery. Uh, it's a doctorate in nursing for midwives. And we also have a doctorate in nursing in women's health. So these are, oh wow, to name a few, and I think uh, some of the more exciting ones for us.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you on our our show today for really the the big reason is you've been doing this for a really long time. And I I don't mean to date you, but, uh, you know, like I said, uh, uh, you started, I think you and your mom started the the university back in the 70s. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, this is my 45th year, (laughs) which uh, it's it's kind of amazing. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, when I look at what happens in the public sector in terms of CEOs and institutions and presidents, uh, I think the average length is five years. Yeah. And I think I've beaten that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I would say I, in fact, I was just talking to a, a just a Dean uh, last week and, you know, he's been in his position. Uh, dean of seven years, and he thought he was pushing. He thought he was. He was happy to be there just, for, just for seven years. So, yeah, I, I would say that your that your longevity is is very impressive. So, so can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you've seen the universities changed over all these years, and and actually even how higher ed has changed over the years. Well,
1: obviously, I've grown up in in uh, in higher education. Uh, originally, before we started the school, I was a teaching assistant at the University of Florida in my doctoral program. And uh, one of the things that I went into the teaching field was uh, I would love working with students and I thought education is, is an absolutely critical part of society. Fortunately, I worked for a fellow who, a uh, brilliant historian, however, he uh, every day came to work saying it's a great job if it wasn't for the students. And, you know, that was a motivation for me to start looking elsewhere. And my mom was teaching at a private college in South Florida. We decided to take our alimony and start a small little school with uh, two programs. And I was the administrator and she was the instructor. And uh, we started with one student and she was late. And as I said, we've grown very dramatically over the years. And higher education has changed and uh, it's... Some for the good and some for the not so good. Uh, we obviously are much more dynamic in our ability to deliver education with whether it be hybrid or online or competency-based educational systems that we don't do, but obviously is a very big part of what's happening in higher ed. And um, the regulation, of course, has quadrupled, quintupled over the years. And, you know, I, 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 I get upset when folks talk about the cost of higher education when they don't realize how much more it costs just to meet the regulatory environment that we're in mm-hmm. and to meet the requirements, whether, whether it be the state the accrediting commissions, the feds, the, the state authorizing committees. I mean, it's uh, it, it, anywhere you turn, there's expense that uh, unfortunately we have to pass on to the student.
0: I see. I see. So as, as um, you look back, what's some of the proudest moments you've had at the university?
1: Oh, there have been a lot of them. Uh, obviously, you know, some from, you know, recently in terms of uh, winning our first football game about six years ago, uh, we played one game. We never played a game before, and we went up to Pikesville, Tennessee, against a ranked team. We look out on the field, these guys are 10 times our size. and We go out and we win the game. And that was just an incredible moment uh, for us because sports was new for us. And just being able to to be on the field with the team and get my picture taken with them, and they're they're so excited. That was an incredible moment. Um, We've had, uh, you know, uh, actually the U.S. News & World Report ranking was, you know, uh, exciting excitement for us. Uh, And then, of course, every graduation, obviously, uh, to see our students graduate, to see our students progress. As I was walking into the airport here uh, in Managua, uh, my campus president was with me, and we were approached by one of our graduates from 2016, and he was so excited to see Matthew, who's the campus president Matthew, you know, he said, "Don't be a stranger." And he said, well, "What are you doing?" And an executive with one of the American companies down here. He's in Nicaragua, and, and our what we teach here is in English. We're an American university in Nicaragua, and when you walk on the campus, it's an English-speaking zone, and uh, very different from most most uh, universities overseas. And uh, just to see that how professional he was, and how uh, you know. Happy he was with his position, and happy that he was where our graduate four years or six years ago.
0: Yeah! Wow. So, so most of as you're saying, then overseas, then most campuses over there are not English speaking campuses.
1: Then. Oh no, we're the only one. We're the only American university in Nicaragua, and except for Costa Rica, Texas and m came in later after we did, and so it was. Um, but other than that, uh, we are, we recruit in Honduras, we recruit in El Salvador, and they come into an American accredited American institution. They take their courses from PhDs, which is also different from what the local universities are, not as, you know, they, they don't have those type of requirements that we have. And uh, they speak English, and when they leave, they're fluent, they're educated in American history, <laughs> American political science, and as well as the curriculum that they, they've enrolled in. So it, it's, it's a very successful model, uh, and um, the kids are just tremendous. And uh, it, it's a very interesting campus and a very interesting uh, uh, learning uh, for us uh, uh, to meet a different type of market, different type of student.
0: Yeah. That seems really exciting, too. What's some of the biggest lessons you've learned as a
1: chancellor? Well, it's not just so much being a chancellor. I've had some good friends who over the years who've taught me and provided a great deal of uh, advice. And uh, the first and probably most important is if you take care of the students, the students will take care of you. Everything else follows. If, if, and when I say take care of the students, it's, it's, it doesn't mean to fall over backwards and bend over backwards. The student is not our customer. The student is our client. Like the client, you have to tell them the truth. that they fail, they fail. Mm. Uh, if you bend over too much, they will take advantage. And that undermines the learning experience and undermines the, the structures that uh, students need in order to be successful. I also learned that structure is important, uh, especially for our students. Now, 80% of our students are adult learners, which is a little different than most uh, the traditional universities. My campus here is traditional and my flagship campus in West Palm Beach are traditional residential campuses with athletics and dorms. But most of our students are the adult learners. Mm. They're focused. 83% of our students are uh, work while they're going to school. 68% have been to another community college or university. 63% have dependents. 48% have spouses. So it's a different, you know, it's not like I'm looking for the next party, um, right. you know, the, you know, the activities. It's more about learning, focusing, structured learning, graduating and up, upgrading their life and uh, their expectations for life.
0: So, if, so, you know, I was a dean. And I got advice from other deans on when I first started. So if I was going to become a chancellor, as a new chancellor, what advice could you give
1: me? I don't think, that's interesting. Uh, build a management team. Build a, a, a good team behind underneath you to not only uh, look at operations of the institution, but look at you know, quality academics and have a, a really effective... Um, leader in the academic area and of course a, a CFO a, a good manager it depends on your size obviously but you have to you know you have to make decisions that are in the best interest of the students that's always the case mm. and as chancellor you can't be as politically focused as some are got to look at what is right now not always do we do the right thing not always do my faculty make the right decisions that's my job is to ensure that one the culture is there that recognizes that the students uh the student needs are tantamount and two that we are able to deliver on that that promise of student first student being the the per- important part Providing a structured learning environment for them so they can be successful.
0: You know your your phrase of a student as a client, not a not a customer, is a is a probably the best way I've ever heard to approach uh, education in the classroom. To say yeah, the least.
1: I, if, if I was to tell you how many times the students weren't right, customers always right. Right. And uh, we have to be careful. We have to guide them. We have to lead them. We have to develop them. Because if we don't. Uh, the education is not as significant as it should be. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, what do you think are the major challenges coming down the pike over the next five years for higher ed?
1: Well, obviously, there's a lot of political involvement in higher ed and the concerns over student debt, the concerns over student cost, the cost of students, which I, I think are more political than real. I think... Uh, I know this may be controversial, but the fact is that students need to invest in their education. It is important. And that the student loan system allows that. It's a horribly run system and I would do it very differently, but it's still that the students need to make that commitment. Nothing is free in this world. And education is expensive. I don't care how you look at it. You pay $120,000 a year for a nursing faculty member. It's not gonna get cheaper uh, because you want it to be less, you need. It, it's, there's a real cost. One of the challenges with, you know, private institutions versus public institutions, the public doesn't see the real cost of the public institution. They only see the subsidized tuition that is one fifth normally, a, or even greater, at an elite institution than in the public sector. So the the, the public is getting this political. I call it drivel, which allows you to think, one, that all student debt is bad. It's not. You know, if people go out and buy a car tomorrow and spend the $40,000 and take a loan. Three years later, the car's not worth that much. But at the same time, a student invests in their education That $40,000, which is more than the average student borrows, will last them a lifetime in terms of rewards and benefits if they use it. And it's all about using it. So I think we need to recognize education is the critical defining difference between success and failure. Now There are some really super sharp people that wouldn't matter what they did. They'd be successful. But for the average person, they need to have knowledge and skills in order to compete. And it's not going to get any cheaper. And it's not going to get any less important in in my mind. Yeah, that's
0: really a good point. Well, what do you think opportunities are going to look like then over the next
1: five years for universities? Uh, Opportunities for what?
0: well so so as as universities as you were talking about here's some of the challenges so what would be what would be the opportunities that you may be looking down the road that you may see you know an example uh you know will online education is that going to be a, a, a an outstanding opportunity for universities down the road it
1: is it is already i mean covid has opened up the uh, the uh, the gates towards our online education but over the next five years take a- two steps, you got AI, which is going to change the way students learn and you're going to be it. and virtual reality, which is gonna allow the students to not only learn by in a, in a reading, but they'll be able to learn by visualization of the of what they're trying to learn and, and participate in that process, kind of like you do in a clinical environment, but it all be virtual. Um, you're, you're gonna see obviously increase in hybrid courses. Uh, I do believe as the AI gets better, you'll see greater involvement in competency-based education. Uh, I'm not a big supporter of that, but I do believe that there's a trend to that. And um, I think there, the smaller liberal arts colleges are going to have harder times. Uh, liberal arts is, is being challenged Though I do believe it's important. That was my background. But I do believe that as costs have increased, there's going to be a greater emphasis on uh, workforce preparation and workforce development. Because as the taxpayers, uh, as the prices go up, the taxpayers are going to demand a greater return on investment.
0: You know, when I use the word non traditional students sometimes, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, students over 25, but it seems like non-traditional students are turning into are turning into the norm now for a lot of the universities.
1: Well, that's our model. And uh, my understanding, the majority of students in American universities today would have been traditionally called non-traditional students.
0: Yeah. So are, do you do anything different, or do you provide different type of services for that student population?
1: Yeah, we're very different. Uh, for the adult learner, you know, five courses at a time over a semester may, doesn't work for them, especially if they have dependents. I mean, when I went to college, if you had a child, you were, you were an anomaly, you were almost ostracized. Today, you have a child that's normal, and children, multiple children. And, you know, when you work and have children and you want to improve yourself, you just can't take five courses at a time. We have a model that teaches one course at a time for a month. Mm -hmm. Instead of the 43 to 45 hours, they get in a traditional semester, we give them 48. But it's five days a week or three days a week, depending on the program area. And at the end of the month, they take a final and they move to the next course. And in the end of 16 weeks, they've had four, four intense courses that they can manage their schedule around, which... A traditional and I don't give my employees a week off for cramming you know for for finals <laughs> employers don't do that so it, it's really important that having one course of time makes it easy. we also have very strict attendance policies I mean you know we have a dress code I, I can imagine myself at 18 team I wanted to come to school with a dress code but for the adult learner you'd be surprised how many students have never worn a tie have never uh you know do not dress and you can't go into an into an office you can't go into a, a major company and be un, you know unkept un, undressed uh, in a in a uh, casual way and expect to get the job and we have to prepare them for that and you'd be surprised how many adult males do not know how to tie a tie or adult females know what professional dresses yeah. we have to, that that's important. Yeah. We'll do that at our, at our 18 year old or the set, you know, the traditional, they have two traditional campuses, right. which are residential and all that. We don't do it there, but for the adult learner, it is very important. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. I still can't get over. You've been doing this from day one. I mean, when people talk to me about it, they, they think they're on the cutting edge. This is so, new. so Holy cow. And why did you come up with that? Was that because that's how you would have wanted to be taught? Or how did you come up to the idea of just doing one class at a time?
1: Well, I wish I could say that I was, we followed a model that we'd seen have been very successful. And again, it's more in the vocational side that that type of model has been worked. We found it to be just as effective in the degree granting and the, the bachelor's. No, some of the programs, like you said, uh, where it makes sense, we'll go to an eight-week, mo- eight-week block with two courses, but that's far between in our, in our model. We, we, we try to tailor-make it to meet the requirements of the, of the program.
0: I see. Well, you know, another topic that I hear about from a lot of college chancellors and presidents has to do with the diversity and equity and inclusion on campuses. So are you doing anything in that arena to help improve that?
1: Um, Let's put it this way. We are majority minority institution. We are Hispanic serving. 34% of our students are uh, Latino. 35% of our students are, what you would say white and 24% of our students are African-American. So we are a very, very diverse institution. Um, we have a very diverse faculty uh, I have a large number of uh, of my leaders at the different campuses who are women and uh, obviously from minority populations it, it's it is just second nature to us it's who we are it's, it's not it's not something we discuss in other than the fact that we are uh, a very diverse and organization. Mm-hmm. And we have the policies, of course to write that and to protect it and we meet the re- meet whatever requirements, but more importantly, uh, we it's part of our culture.
0: Well besides uh, diversity and equity and inclusion, another topic I keep hearing about is the mental health of students. So what can campuses do to tackle that problem?
1: That's a tougher one, especially in the residential campuses where we have the kids living in our dorms. Um, we have we have a, a phone hotline, which is available for the students, but even then they won't use that. Our RAs, our, our resident advisors, are trained to identify the problems and then, of course, we use the social services and the student services that we have with the professionals in order to keep. Uh, you know, these are very trying times and they're stressful times, and some of our kids are really stressed out. So mm-hmm. we 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 pay close attention to them. Uh, I don't think it's as bad as some other institutions that you know. Uh, for the adult learners, it's not as much of a challenge. For the, for the high school kids high school grads it is a much bigger challenge yeah. we have and I said we have a, a doctoral program in mental health and we have we're part of a, a, a program with the Department of uh, the Florida Department of Human Services and where we'll provide mental health counseling so it's a multi-layer approach to it but it is a concern and hopefully they as we unwind from the pandemic, we'll see a little less of the challenges and stress.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that really put everybody over the top was the pandemic for sure on campuses. Um, what about campus safety? You know, that's all in the news again. So for your residential programs.
1: We have full-time <laughs> security all over the place. It's a it's a big expense for us, would, uh, but it's something we gladly um, uh, Uh, spend the money on and our campuses are closed to the public, you know, Mm -hmm. during the evenings hours. And, uh, you know, we check people who come in Uh, in Nicaragua, which is even more, much more security conscious because of the nature of the communities. Um, (laughs) I met with my students and they were complaining that when they come on campus, they have to go through the checklist and sign in. And they were required to wear a mask to come on campus, but as soon as they got on campus, they could take it off. So I, you know, it's one of those stupid policies that you change, and I did. And you know, but we watch that very closely, and we make sure that the uh, the campuses are a safe place.
0: Yeah. Um, here's my last question for you, and this and some of this is self-serving because I'm always interested in what you have to say. But a lot of our listeners not, like to hear about it, and that has to do with uh, leadership books. Do you have any favorite leadership books that you would like to recommend to other academic leaders?
1: So I have a favorite one. Uh, the book, probably not many people. It, its culture is everything. I can't remember the gentleman from South Africa. I, I honestly believe that is critical for leadership in developing a culture that is, uh, one works for a leader, but more importantly works for the organization. And it, it, it provides the structure to uh, make sure that the value systems and the, the, uh, pro- the productivity of the institution are met and the goals are met and uh, and that's that's my job as the ceo and chancellor is to ensure the culture is the appropriate culture for what we're doing
0: Mm, well great well arthur thanks so much for being on our show i really enjoyed our conversation
1: david thank you and thank you for being flexible with me and uh i look forward to meeting meeting with you and uh anytime i can be of any help let me know
0: Thank you so much, sir. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.